Good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Uh, to start with, let's do a quick straw poll. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with the phrase, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. Okay, most of you most of you are. Uh, Lacey and I use it a lot around our house because Tripman rarely colors inside the lines, so we say to each other a lot, oh look, the writing's on the wall. Who left the markers out? Uh, who left the crayons out? But in most situations, the phrase, the writing is on the wall, means there are clear signs that a situation is going to become difficult or unpleasant or even dangerous. For example, you might say, Bill has not been fired yet, but the writing is on the wall. The company has laid off several employees from his department this quarter. Now, what you may not know about this commonly used expression is it actually comes from Daniel chapter 5, where God writes a mysterious message which reveals his final judgment on a sinful king. So let's look at verse 1. just want you to look at these first two words, King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar. For the last four chapters, the king at the center of the narrative has been Nebuchadnezzar. But as we turn the page to chapter 5, another king is in charge, and we are provided with no formal introduction to him, no biographical background of him, and no explanation of his place in the line of succession to the throne of Babylon. Sinclair Ferguson suggests that this drastic shift reminds us that the book of Daniel is not merely a record of history of God's people in exile in Babylon. It is far more concerned with the spiritual conflict that underlies history and comes to the surface in dramatic form in particular events of crucial significance to the kingdom of God. Belshazzar serves as a further illustration of the sovereignty of God and his ability to pull down kings from their thrones. In other words, even though the book of Daniel covers historical events, it is not organized, structured, or written like a history book. However, before we get into it today, we should mention one interesting note about Belshazzar from a historical standpoint. Until the middle of the 19th century, the book of Daniel was one of the only documents in world history which even mentioned Belshazzar's existence. According to Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian Empire, but for centuries, all of modern scholarship disagreed because the records of ancient historians and the vast number of cuneiform documents were united in claiming Nabonidus was the true ruler during the fall to Medo-Persia. But in 1854, an archaeologist named John George Taylor from the British Museum was excavating an ancient Babylonian temple in Iraq, and he found four clay cylinders with identical markings, which were translated as a prayer of King Nabonidus where he was asking the moon god to bless, quote, Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring. And then in, in 1882, 
The translation of another ancient text called the Nabonidus Chronicle was published, and according to this document, Nabonidus was a mostly absentee king. In fact, he spent 10 of his 17 years on the throne away from the capital. And when Babylon fell in 1539, Nabonidus was on a military campaign in Arabia, and his son Belshazzar was on the throne serving as the de facto king of Babylon. This is why later in the chapter, Belshazzar tells Daniel and the other wise men, if you can solve my problem, if you can interpret this mysterious message, I will make you the third ruler in the kingdom. So dad is number one, I'm number two, and you can be number three. All right, let's read a little further. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and, and drank wine. By the way, the Aramaic word used for wine here means lots of wine. This is what the kids call a, a rager. And so they drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings, the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now what's interesting here is apparently it was common knowledge within the empire that the Medo-Persian army was bearing down on Babylon. And it was only a matter of time before they would be under direct attack. And yet even though his empire was on the verge of an assault from enemy forces. Belshazzar was throwing a giant party in front of his gods. And, and we, we don't really know why. We can't get into his head. Maybe he was putting on a brave face. Uh, maybe he was just that arrogant that he believed Babylon could never fall. Or, or maybe he was searching for a, a distraction. Uh, personally, I, I believe it, it could be any, um, but, uh, but I'd say that the, the, the one about him being too arrogant is, is probably where I would lean because as we'll see in the text, uh, Belshazzar is, is the type of guy who was born on third base and brags to everyone about hitting a triple. He was uber privileged. He was, he was spoiled. He was filled with pride. And so he determined his best course of action was partying in the face of death. Many of you remember Y2K. In 1999, uh, with some predicting a, a computer-induced apocalypse at the turn of the century, most people experienced varying levels of fear and anxiety about power grids failing, supply chains breaking down, and, and financial institutions crumbling at midnight on December 31st. And in response to that potential crisis, some panicked, but others partied. Some stocked up on food, water, and firearms. They purchased backup generators. They withdrew large sums of money from their banks. But others took a different approach. They adopted the mantra, party like it's 1999. 
which which means your know, party like there is no tomorrow. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, the most consistent human reaction to unpleasant thoughts about mortality is distraction with amusement. And he illustrated his point by comparing the journey of life to a, a stagecoach that is barreling towards a cliff. And it's a little morbid, but it is accurate because we understand that, that death comes for all of us eventually. And so you, you know the cliff is coming. And you can't stop the stagecoach. You can't exit the stagecoach. So what do you do? How do you avoid letting your mind become consumed with death? How do you stop yourself from obsessing over the brevity of life and the vastness of eternity? For most people, the answer to that question is distraction. Instead of wrestling with these tough questions, they enjoy the beautiful scenery along the path. They engage in pleasant conversation with fellow passengers. They choose to read a book, stream a show, or, or scroll through their social media. So in Pascal's view, when Belshazzar parted in the face of death, he was exploring a very natural human inclination. But what feels natural isn't always right. And in reality, Belshazzar fell short on a couple levels on this particular night. And for starters, he, he completely blew off his responsibilities as ruler. As ruler of, of Babylon. This, this position that he had been privileged, that he had been given by God, with all the status, influence, and power that comes with it. He just pushes all that to the side. Verse 1 calls the party a great feast, which is a truly subdued description of what's actually happening. One of my commentators that, that I read said that it was probably closer to a drunken orgy. And we also learned that Belshazzar drank wine in the presence of the thousand. This was very unlike the king, very unbecoming of the king to drink in front of his subjects. Sinclair Ferguson writes that this seems to mean more than face value. It, it conveys a sense of the theatrical. With all eyes on the king, he drinks himself under the table as a demonstration of his bravado. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 2, it goes from bad to worse. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem may be brought so that they might drink from them. In 605 BC, when the army of Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Judah, they celebrated their victory by ransacking the temple. According to Ezra, the number of vessels taken was around 5,400. So they didn't grab a few souvenirs on the, their way out of town. They executed a wholesale raiding of God's house. And their clear purpose in, in doing this was sending a message to everyone that our gods are superior to your God. The many gods of, of Babylon are stronger, wiser, and better than the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. That, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was accomplishing in, in doing that. But with that said, you have to remember that when Nebuchadnezzar did that, he was a polytheist. And the majority of Babylon were, were polytheists, and, and generally they didn't make a habit of thumbing their noses at other gods, even the gods of their conquered enemies. And so Nebuchadnezzar oversaw a ransacking of the temple, but he treated everything that was taken from the temple as collector's items. Right? He polished them up, he put them on a shelf. They were trophies of, of war, and for 70 years they remained untouched until Belshazzar decided the only thing missing from his party was a heinous act of blasphemy. And at that very moment, the writing was on the wall for him and for the whole empire. Verse 5 says, immediately, immediately, God was exceedingly patient with Nebuchadnezzar, but he dealt with Belshazzar's sin immediately. Brian Chapel points out that chapter 5 is the inverse of chapter 4. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion affirms that the repentant reap the rewards of grace however bleak their past. But in chapter 5, Belshazzar's Sacrilege declares that the rebellious reap the consequences of wrath, however secure their present. And so these two evil kings demonstrate two vital messages that God will pardon the humble, but he will also judge the proud. So verse 5 says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the light stand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's colors changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. When the writing began appearing on the wall, Belshazzar went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Look at the description of his reaction in verse 6. His color changed. He turned white as a ghost. His thoughts alarmed him. He moved from boastful and arrogant to fearful and anxious. His knees were knocking together. He was shaking in his boots. And then, most strikingly, his limbs gave way. And I want to share with you a, a fun fact about that phrase. That phrase can also be translated as his loins were loose. And so some scholars and commentators believe that the original author is saying Belshazzar wet his royal pants in this moment. And as this, this fear and, and dread overwhelmed him, he made a familiar move. He did something we saw Nebuchadnezzar do a few times, he, he, he turned to his religion, he turned to his wise men. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king, the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. 
one of the recurring themes in the early chapters of Daniel is the failure of Babylon's wise men to deliver answers to the most important questions. Obviously, these guys were contributing in some way because the king kept them around, but over and over again, when the king was plagued by a dream or a vision or a question of significance, they offered zero assistance. And I realize that, that your gut reaction to another appearance from these wise men, and we say that with very sarcastic air quotes, might be, hey, Belshazzar, what are you thinking? These clowns have a lifetime batting average of .000 in crucial situations. Of course they didn't read the writing on the wall. Of course they couldn't give you an interpretation. Why did you even waste your time with them? But let me remind you that often we exhibit the same tendencies when we're faced with a crisis. What I mean is, nothing pinpoints the ultimate source of your hope quicker than trial, tribulation, and trouble. When you face a difficult situation, when you face a, a tough circumstance, when you face an uncertain outcome, do you look around you or do you look above you? Do you say, I hope I have enough money? Do you say, I hope I'm carrying the correct insurance? Do you say, I hope I'm surrounded by the right doctors? Or do you say, I don't know what comes next. Don't know what's around the corner, but I do know my hope comes from the Lord. Remember at the end of chapter 4, after God had dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, he finally looked up and praised the Most High God. But Belshazzar, when faced with a crisis, he doesn't look up, he looks around him to get help from his religion. And then we come to verse 10, and another person enters the room, the queen because of the words of the Lord of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall. More than likely, uh, this was the queen mother. It is possible that it was Belshazzar's favorite of many wives, but based on the strong advice that she offers the king, this was probably his mom, because even kings listen to their moms. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like wisdom of the gods were found in him, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And by the way, she means ancestor or, or predecessor to the throne. Your father, the king, made him chief of magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. We don't know 
anything about the queen except that she was wise enough to stay very far away from this party. And she spoke with deep respect for Daniel. She mentioned several of his attributes, but most strikingly, she called him by his Hebrew name, which indicates some level of understanding that Daniel was a servant of God. And she told Belshazzar to send for him. He has an excellent spirit. He can interpret dreams. He can explain riddles. He can solve problems. He's your guy. And so verse 13, Daniel's brought in. says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father brought from Judah. So, so again, we see that Belshazzar was just the worst. In the midst of this crisis, everything's crumbling all around him. He can't resist the opportunity to punch down on one of his captives. He's facing a puzzling question, and he's talking to the one man in his entire kingdom who's capable of offering him a satisfying answer. And the first words out of his mouth were, Oh, so you're Daniel. You're one of my many conquered enemies from our rich history of military success. Well, I guess I'm taking advice from captives now. But putting that aside, Belshazzar did listen to what his mother said. As we continue reading, we see that some of her counsel sank in. Verse 14, I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of this for this matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So, after... A little over two decades in relative obscurity, Daniel was summoned for another interpretation of another mysterious passage given to another pagan king. At this point, Daniel was in his 80s. After the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar died uh, 23 years before this moment. And after his reign, one of the ensuing kings had, had put Daniel out to pasture. Babylonians were done with him, but God wasn't. God wasn't. Many of you know I'm a third-generation Baptist preacher, uh, for better or worse. But my, my grandfather spent a few decades preaching in, in small churches all over middle Georgia. Uh, he was a, a bivocational pastor most of the time that he was pastoring. And when he retired from ministry in his 70s, he didn't retire from ministry. After he reached a point where his health wouldn't allow him to, to, to do the job anymore, he stopped writing sermons and he started writing letters. Because the unfortunate truth is most of the notes, emails, and messages that many of us receive on a daily basis are either neutral or, or negative. And so he determined 
that he would do his part to put a few more words of encouragement out into the world. And one of his longtime best friends became involved in this little ministry too. Papa started finding stamps and envelopes and, and bags hanging on his door. And he didn't know who was bringing them, and he found out that it was his longtime friend, and his friend told him, you know, I don't have the way with words that you do. I don't have the handle of Scripture that you do, but I love what you're doing. I love that you're writing these letters and these notes of encouragement to people, and I just figured I could at least buy some stamps. My grandfather died on Super Bowl Sunday, February of, of 2008. I was a freshman in college, about to play an intramural basketball game when I got the call. And on his desk, he left an unfinished letter to another pastor who had been diagnosed with cancer. On his last day on earth, he was still doing kingdom work. And so for those of you who are the older generation of the church, and, and I'm not going to name names on that. I'm going to let you figure out where you stand. <laughs> I'm, I'm a young pastor, but I'm not a fool. Um, but for those of you who are in the older generation of our church, I want you to know as you grow older, the means may change, but the end is the same. We don't have any expectation that you're going to chaperone youth trips like you used to do. Or you're going to teach Sunday school classes like you used to do. That you're going to serve on, on committees and ministry teams like you used to do. But Daniel's situation reminds us that no matter your age, your most important work for the Lord may still be ahead of you. We say all the time, as long as you have breath in your lungs, God has a plan and a purpose for you. God has numbered your days. If you're still here, it's for a reason. Remember, Daniel is in his 80s and the lion's den is next week. His, his, the, 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 the climax of his story is next week. All right, let's get back to it. Verse 17, Daniel begins speaking to the king, and he comes in hot. It says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So right away, he told him, first of all, you can hang on to the gold chain and the purple jumpsuit. I'm not interested in any of that, but I will provide for you an interpretation. And in many ways, verse 17 set the tone for the rest of Daniel's speech, which runs to verse 28. He was not disrespectful, but he was direct. Now, before interpreting the writing on the wall, Daniel took Belshazzar on the scenic route, which provided him with lessons in both history and biblical theology. Sometimes when one of my children is telling a long story about their day at school and we're five minutes into it and no exit ramps inside. I have to fight the urge to say, okay, listen, I love you, 
but you got to pick up the pace a little bit. You got to get to the point of this story. And I imagine Belshazzar and his fear and anxiety is probably feeling the same way. Daniel said, sure, I can interpret your message. And Belshazzar responded, great, let's hear it. And Daniel said, not so fast. Let me tell you a story about the glory days of King Nebuchadnezzar first. And Belshazzar is thinking, oh, please don't. But Daniel wasn't stretching out the material like an English 101 student who didn't read the whole book and is trying to get to a certain word count for his paper. Daniel's detour serves a greater purpose. It provided a refresher for Belshazzar, and in a literary sense, it builds anticipation for the reader too. And so Daniel's speech in verses 18 to 28 can be divided into three parts. First, Daniel gives a lesson in history. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled in fear before him. Whom he, whom he would he killed, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt was dealt with proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He fed on grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew of heaven, until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So this is a, a short recap of chapters 1 through 4, right? God blessed Nebuchadnezzar with all his greatness, glory, and majesty. But instead of praising God for these gifts, the king grew increasingly arrogant and prideful. And eventually God broke him down. He removed his kingdom. He scrambled his mind. He banished him to live among the animals until Nebuchadnezzar looked up and recognized the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind. And so Belshazzar was walking along the same path of arrogance and pride because as the old saying goes, those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. And that's what's happening in chapter 5. So second, Daniel brings an accusation of sin. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you've not honored. So Daniel brought two charges against Belshazzar. He charged him with idolatry, said in verse 22, you've not humbled your heart even though you're familiar with your nation's history. You have, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have not worshipped God as God. And if we've, as we've previously mentioned, in the book of Daniel, idolatry of, of pagan leadership is in plain sight. Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot-tall golden statue in chapter 3. Belshazzar's throwing a massive party in honor of his gods in chapter 5. But we can't forget that idolatry 
includes more than worshiping visible physical idols. By definition, idolatry is prioritizing any person or thing above God. Even good things can become idols. Like husbands, you should love your wife as Christ loved the church, but she can't come first. Wives, you should support, honor, and, and respect and care for your husbands, but he can't come first. Parents, you should raise your children in the fear of the Lord, but they can't come first. Workers, you should perform your job every day for the glory of God, but it can't come first. And the list goes on and on and on. This is why the reformer John Calvin called our hearts an idol factory. And so we have to ask ourselves all the time, day by day, am I giving God my first and best or second and the rest? We know where Belshazzar lands. But he didn't stop with idolatry. Daniel also charged him with blasphemy. Verse 23 says, And the vessels of his house were brought in before you, and you drank wine from them. Belshazzar took the vessels of God, and he used them for his purposes. And so specifically, Daniel was referencing how Belshazzar condescendingly repurposed items consecrated for the worship of God, but by calling it out, he also reminds us the true nature of sin is taking anything God is set apart for his purposes and using it for our own. And so Daniel gives a lesson in history. Daniel brings an accusation of sin, and then finally Daniel reveals the judgment of God. Verse 24, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. God has numbered your days, the days of your kingdom, and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple, and a gold chain was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom which is kind of like getting promoted at Enron right before everything falls apart. And so Daniel gave a straightforward interpretation to Belshazzar. One, your days are numbered. Two, you have been weighed and found wanting, meaning you are sinful and unrepentant. And three, your kingdom will be divided. In verse 30 and 31, we see God kept his word. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And just like that, Belshazzar's story comes to a very unceremonious end. The writing was on the wall for him and the Babylonian Empire. But on a certain level, what was true for Belshazzar is true for all of us. His judgment serves as our warning. And so I want you to consider these three statements that Daniel says to him in reverse order. First, your kingdom will be divided. None of us are kings or queens over vast domains. I, I think I own not quite half of an acre. 
I don't think you could call that a vast domain. But over our lifespans, we all accumulate a lot of stuff, which we can't keep forever. Because as you've heard the, the old saying, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. When you pass away, all of your money, all of your possessions will be divided among your children and grandchildren. Your kingdom will be divided. Second, you have been weighed and you are found wanting. Charles Spurgeon closed his sermon on Daniel 5 by saying this to his congregation. I would have every man put himself into the divine scales. They are true to a hair. One grain of sand will tip them. On one side of the scale I will put only one commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And I invite any man who flatters himself that he has no need for mercy, no need for atonement, no need for the washing and the blood of Christ to step on the scales and see if he measures up. All are weighed on the divine scales of God's justice, and all fall short of the glory of God. And then finally, your days are numbered. Belshazzar was giving, given far more insight in the timing of his death than we will ever receive, but the fact remains, everyone under the sound of my voice has an expiration date. Death will ultimately come for us all. And so the writing is on the wall for us too. Our kingdoms will be divided. We've been weighed and found wanting, and our days are numbered. Now, honestly, Belshazzar's story arc isn't very encouraging or uplifting or inspiring. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a major bummer. His disastrous fall from grace produced truly brutal outcomes for him and many others who were under his leadership. But again, their judgment serves as our warning. Which brings us to the question which we consider at the end of every chapter of Daniel. Where do we see Christ in chapter 5? And we don't see any explicit references to the coming Messiah, but we should realize that all of the events in Daniel 5 happen in the shadow of the cross. Like Belshazzar, we have sinned against God. Like Belshazzar, we have practiced idolatry and blasphemy. Like Belshazzar, we are deserving of condemnation. Like Belshazzar, we have been weighed and found wanting. But unlike Belshazzar, you can place your hope in a Savior who drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for you. And when you trust in Him, His righteousness is credited to you and the divine scales are forever tipped in your favor. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. 
Daniel 5 presents us with no silver lining or glass half full perspective for Belshazzar. It's a a story of a sinful king who sinned against you and, and paid dearly for it. But Father, if we're going to acquire a full appreciation of the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is the writing on the wall, the writing is on the wall for all of us. But the good news is you sent your son. He who knew no sin, you made sin so that in him we might become righteousness of God. And so, Father, we thank you for that gospel. And Father, I pray that, that everyone under the sound of my voice would, would rest in that gospel and stop striving and scrambling in hopes of measuring up to your standard. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Pray these things in his name. Amen.